0: Niigata, Japan is a beautiful port town facing the Japan Sea. The seaside city is known for its vast agricultural land due to its wetlands. Niigata is a heavily populated area today known as the birthplace of many notable people in Japanese culture. The city is most famous for its rice, fish, sake, nuclear plant, and for being the setting of a 1935 classic novel called Snow Country. Nowadays, it's a city thriving with culture from its food, festivals, and sporting events. Because of its vast culture, Niigata is known as a must-visit place while touring Japan. However, there is one mystery that plagues the beautiful city. In 1977, a 13-year-old girl seemingly vanished into thin air during a short walk home from badminton practice. Unfortunately, the bizarre circumstances in which she disappeared would be the start of 17 Japanese citizens who mysteriously vanished over the next six years, a case that is left open for its brazen and tragic acts of crime. Welcome to the first episode of Crimson Sin with Tamsin Lee. I am your host, Tamsin Lee. This case's full show notes and sources can be found at tamsinleecrimsinsin.podbean.com. Please let me know if there are any details that have been lost in translation or are missing. Some international cases, some details can be missing or can become lost in translation since there's that language barrier. So this case surprised me a lot while researching it and the more I dug into it, the more shocking it became. It seems like something that would happen only in a movie. I am slightly in fear of talking about it, which if you aren't familiar with this case, you will soon understand why. But if you are familiar with this case, you will understand me when I say, please do not come after me. (laughs) So this case deals with a lot of allegations that pertain to North Korea. Some of the information was confirmed by North Korea, while others are merely speculated. I am only reporting what I heard through credible published articles and interviews with the families of the victims, as well as the victims themselves. So let's dive into today's topic of the abduction of Magumi Yokota, and the other Japanese citizens. So the Yokota family called Niigata home. They lived in a cozy two-story house that the Bank of Japan provided because Shigeru, the father, was the central bank's representative in the region. Niigata was a bustling port city in a peaceful, friendly, middle-class neighborhood with about 800,000 people in the 1970s. Situated along the picturesque north coast of Honshu Island, it's the perfect place to enjoy the tranquility and the seaside. The Yakoda family consists of Shigeru and Saki and their children, their daughter Megumi, and their twin sons, Takuya and Tetsuya. Megumi was a cheerful and bubbly 13-year-old girl who was like the son to her family members. Like many her age, Megumi enjoyed singing and drawing. She also enjoyed practicing Japanese calligraphy and classical ballet. On November 14th, it was her father's birthday, and she gifted him a comb, telling him to please take good care of your appearance from now on. The next morning was an ordinary day for the Yokota family. Before heading to school or to work, all of them sat down and ate breakfast together as a family. But, after finishing her school day, Magumi headed to the gym for her badminton practice. She was selected for special training due to her talent in the sport. As the sun set, Magumi started her walk home accompanied by two friends, all wearing white and grey uniforms. Eventually, they went their separate ways and Magumi continued up the hill towards her house, carrying her backpack and badminton racket. She was only a few minutes walk from home. Saki Yokota waited for her daughter to return. As 6 o'clock turned to 7, the mother became very anxious, awaiting her child's arrival. It was uncharacteristic of her daughter to come home late. Saki decided to head to Yori Middle School's gym, hoping she would meet her daughter along the way. The mother's spirit lifted when she heard the sounds of young women's voices in the gym. Unfortunately, it was a mother's volleyball team making the sounds and the school's night watchman informed Saki that the children had left long ago. Panic-stricken, Saki called the police. Within minutes, officers and tracker dogs were at the scene. The dogs would follow the path Magumi had taken home, but the dogs lost her scent at the top of the hill. People searched the pine forests nearby, calling Magumi's name as Saki ran towards the beach, scanning the vehicles nearby. The sea had low waves that night, with local fishermen stating a boat could have come to shore. The police were treating this case with different scenarios. So each scenario they played through included being kidnapped, running away, an accident, or a suicide. The police thought Magumi was likely kidnapped for ransom or they thought there could be been a possibility that she just ran away. So they conducted the most extensive search the prefecture had seen, but their efforts came to a standstill. With no eyewitnesses and no items left behind, it was as if she just vanished into thin air. During the year following Megumi's disappearance, the police dedicated 3,000 staff days to the search effort. A specialized unit occupied the Yokota house, which was focused on investigating kidnappings. Additionally, patrol boats extensively combed the sea in crosshatched pattern, covering a vast area in their search, but just like the night of her disappearance, there was nothing. From the day that she disappeared, the Okoda family changed entirely. The once lively dinner table conversations were now quiet and dull. Megumi's father would regularly wake up early before work and just walk along the sandy beach each morning, hoping to run into his daughter. In the evenings, he would find solace in the privacy of his own tears while bathing. Similarly, Saki, Megumi's mother, would also shed tears when she found herself alone, silently hoping their nine-year-old sons would not overhear her. When she finished her housework, she would walk to many different places around town and walk along the shore for several kilometers just calling for her daughter. Both parents thought, why must we go through such a sad experience? I just want to die already. But her parents wouldn't give up hope of finding her. The Okotos contacted friends from the two previous towns they had lived in, most likely to share the news that Megumi was missing, and to probably ask if they had seen her or to just be on the lookout for her, like if you see her, please call me and let me know. They had also appeared on five different TV networks showing pictures of Megumi, hoping she would return, but again, it was as if she'd just vanished. People started telling the Yakotas that ghosts or UFOs spirited Megumi away. Saki expressed that it was a special time between the mother and daughter when Megumi went missing. She stated that Megumi was very interesting and inspiring. She started to talk a lot. Megumi was always cheerful, active, and fun, and liked joking. She recalled her daughter's love for animals and how she would pick up stray cats and feed them. Megumi once found a frog wrapped it in clothes, and played with it. Saki also stated that the landscape of Niigata was frozen from that moment for her when she realized that Megumi wasn't home on time. She said that it was a beautiful landscape of pine trees and bays, but she doesn't want to recall it. She says, When I go there, I'm flooded with emotion, with sad and bitter memories. I almost wanted to kill myself when I was there. I had no idea what I could do to find her. She and her husband struggled as husband and wife after Megumi's disappearance. Saki explained that they cannot always depend on each other, but they have bonded strongly since Megumi disappeared. While the Yokota family was experiencing such sorrow and pain, they tried to live through the void. As life always does, it moved on. Eventually, it was time for the Yokota twins to take their senior high exam. The family moved to Tokyo around this time when Shigeru was made head of office. The parents stated that their sons were a little relieved when they moved, because in Niigata, everyone always asked them about their sister. Saki continued describing how their sons went on to college, started their careers, and moved into their own homes. She expressed how her sons turned into fine adults, but Saki added that she was sure they still had many feelings and were troubled inside. As time progressed, one of the twins had a son while the other had three sons. That means Megumi is still the only girl. Takuya, Megumi's younger brother, stated that people generally think that he doesn't remember much about his sister. Still, he does clearly recall her even though he was only nine when she disappeared. Takuya stated that his sister was very chatty, active, and bright. She was like a sunflower to our family, he said. He also recalls when his sister went missing. The officer searching for his sister showed him and his brother martial arts videos that urged them to be strong and not be beaten. This advice always stuck with him. Takuya continued that after Megumi's absence, he was very worried. But somehow he would fall asleep and wake up to find her still missing. I got up and I still couldn't find her. For the first 20 years after Magumi vanished, the Okotos were left with nothing but an unsolved mystery and an overwhelming desire to uncover the truth. They would often speculate on how she may have grown up. She was tall for her age, was she still? Did she still have those adorable dimples from her childhood? But an unsettling uncertainty loomed over their every question. They had no way of knowing if she had managed to survive that fateful November evening. The family wouldn't receive any answers about their daughter until January 21, 1997. Shigeru was retired when he received a call from the secretary of an MP with the most bizarre news. The MP informed Shigeru Your daughter appears to have been abducted by North Korea and living in Pyongyang. Pyongyang is the capital of North Korea. When they arrived at the MP's office, they received a book that was written in October of 1996, a small Korean book that contained an article on abduction directives by Kim Jong-il. The editor came to Niigata to talk about this article, which was published by a research institute. He had a small audience, but as soon as they heard about the details, they were like, that's gotta be Megumi. And they even gave the editor a bunch of old newspaper articles. So can you imagine spending 30 years wondering about your child's fate only to discover North Korea allegedly abducted them? I can't even begin to understand the complex emotions that brings to the Yokota family. Imagine the hope that they felt that their daughter was alive, but also unsure of the physical and mental state she is in. So this begs the question, why? Why was Megumi abducted? She was only a 13-year-old girl when this happened. I mean, what use does any country have for abducting a child? Children do not hold any pertinent, pertinent information about governments or military secrets. But this information about their daughter not only brought up the question why, but also how do we get her back? So how they got this information, it happened in 1993. A North Korean spy who defected to the South described in great detail a Japanese woman who matched Magumi's description. He stated that he remembered her very clearly because he was young and she was beautiful. He recalled that in 1988, a senior spymaster who was one of her kidnappers had told him about Magumi's story. Basically what happened was a bit of a mistake. According to the North Korean defector, nobody had actually planned on kidnapping a kid. These two agents were wrapping up a mission in Niigata and waiting on the beach for a boat to pick them up, but then they realized that they had been seen from the road and got worried about being caught. So in a panic, they ended up grabbing this person. Now Megumi was quite tall for her age, and in the darkness, they couldn't tell that she was just a child. And okay, don't get me wrong. I don't know the average height of a North Korean male, but if there is any truth to a picture I have seen of a North Korean soldier standing in between an American soldier and a South Korean soldier, it would be an easy mistake. So in this picture, I saw the two soldiers towered over the man from North Korea. However, it is also worth noting that the South Korean government allegedly only places men no shorter than six foot two at the border as an intimidation tactic. I provided a link to the photo in the show notes for anyone who wants to see it. The Yakota family was obviously in shock. How would Megumi have known that the agents were Korean spies? I mean, how would she have known that they were agents at all? I mean, to be honest, she could have just looked over there and saw two men standing at the shore. Or she may have not even looked in their general direction at all. From the description, the men only saw a silhouette of a person. That means poor Megumi could have been happily skipping home after badminton practice and never seen them. The North Korean defector continued that Magumi was locked in a pitch black storage room for 40 hours until they reached North Korea. Her fingernails were torn and bloody from trying to claw her way out. She cried for her mother and refused to eat which perturbed her captors. The agents were criticized for their poor judgment. What use was a little girl to them? To call Megumi, they promised that if she worked hard and learned fluent Korean, she would be allowed to return home. Unfortunately, they had no intention of allowing her to go home after this. Could you imagine how much trouble the country would be in with every nation if they would have let her go? Instead, they found a better use for Megumi. Allegedly, they forced her to work as a spy trainer by teaching Japanese language and etiquette at an elite school for espionage. By the time Magumi reached 18 years old, she was informed that she could never return home. A distraught Magumi, understandably broke down from this devastating news. Allegedly, this botched abduction set up a sort of precedent in North Korea. Back then, the country's future leader, Kim Jong-il, was the head of North Korea's intelligence services and reportedly wanted to expand this spy program. There is allegedly a lot to gain from kidnapping foreigners because they were useful as teachers and they could be turned into spies or Pyongyang could steal their identities to create false passports. Another beneficial idea of this is that the abducted foreigners could marry other foreigners, which is something that North Koreans are absolutely forbidden to do, and in turn, their children could serve the regime. So in theory, the shores of Japan were full of everyday people ripe for the picking. Who would stand no chance against highly trained agents? It is suspected that the Sea of Japan Tower was likely used as a landmark for kidnappings in Niigata. This is supported by the fact that one North Korean spy was arrested in the 50s and two were arrested in the 1960s in the area. Both had their vessels confiscated. Also, eight of the 17 recognized abductions happened in Niigata. In the late 1970s, to early 1980s, coastal towns were laden with rumors by locals. These residents spoke of hearing strange radio signals, seeing lights from unknown ships, and discovering Korean cigarette packs thrown away by the shore. In August of 1978, in the Toyama Prefecture, which is roughly 153 miles from Niigata, a couple was on a date at the beach when they were approached by four men. The couple were subsequently gagged, hooded, and handcuffed. These men were stated to have oddly formal Japanese accents, which it would seem pretty odd to be assaulted by someone using formalities as formalities. You would expect the person to be rude and use slang, right? So even though it is not reported this is connected to the case, the four men had to have been foreigners. So the circumstances are peculiar since these events happened during the time of these rumors. But the couple was lucky because someone was walking their dog and when the dog started barking, the perpetrators just ran away. Unfortunately, others were not as lucky. So Japan's Sankei Shimbun newspaper ran a front page story on January 7, 1980 which read, three couples on dates evaporate mysteriously along the coasts of Fuki, Niigata, and Kagoshima is a foreign intelligence agency involved. And I am so sorry if I mispronounced those. (laughs) However, the link to North Korea would only be made in 1987 by a convicted terrorist, which I am going to tell you a brief walkthrough of her testimony uh, and what happened to her afterward. In 1989, Kim hyun hee aka Okwa was given a death sentence for her part in helping to smuggle a bomb on Korean Air Flight 858, which claimed the lives of 115 people. After being captured in Bahrain, she was extradited to South Korea to stand trial for her crime. In her testimony, she gave a compelling account of her life in North Korea, training as an agent. According to Kim, After joining the North Korean Intelligence Agency, she was given the name Okwa, then sent to live in a compound in Pyongyang. In this facility, she spent the next seven years learning martial arts, physical fitness, and Japanese. Kim stated that her teacher in Japanese language and behavior was an abducted Japanese woman, going by the name of Lee Unhe, whom she lived with for almost two years. It was later confirmed that the Japanese woman was Yeiko Taguchi. Hyunhe claimed that Taguchi would often cry when she spoke of how much she missed her children in Japan. Students at this compound were also shown propaganda films. At the end of her training, she was tested and required to infiltrate and memorize a document from a mock embassy. After this she was sent to Macau to learn Cantonese and taught how to shop in supermarkets, use credit cards, and visit discos. All of these amenities are something that does not exist in North Korea so this is necessary to be taught. By 1987, Kim Hyun-wee had traveled through Europe, Moscow, and Budapest accompanied by a man named Kim Sung-il. In Budapest, the two of them were given fake Japanese passports and started posing as a daughter and father while touring Europe and ultimately flying to Baghdad to prepare for their bombing mission. hyun claimed that she received a handwritten letter from Kim Il-sung, the leader of North Korea, at the time of her assignment. She also claimed that the letter stated that if she were successful, she would no longer need to work as an agent. After they completed their mission, the two agents were apprehended in Bahrain when investigators discovered that their passports were fake. Sung Il bit a cyanide pill that was hidden in a cigarette. When Hyun tried to do the same, the police officer snatched the cigarette out of her mouth before she was she could fully ingest the poison. After investigators were convinced that she was a North Korean spy, they flew her to Seoul, South Korea heavily guarded, bound, and gagged. After eight days of being shown how prosperous South Korea was, being shown TV shows, news, and the affluent lifestyle that South Koreans had, she broke down and confessed to everything. In March 1989, she was sentenced to death for her involvement in the terrorist attack. However, South Korean President Roh Tae-woo pardoned her later that year because she was a brainwashed victim of the real culprit. In 1993, Hyunui wrote an autobiography titled The Tears of My Soul and donated the proceeds to the families of the victims of Flight 858. In 1997, she married a former South Korean agent who handled her case, and she has two children with him. In March 2009, she met the family of her Japanese teacher, Yeko Yeko Taguchi, where she expressed her belief that she was still alive. I'm gonna get back to, I'm gonna get into the story of Yeiko Taguchi in a little bit, so so stay tuned for that. But I'm gonna continue with Kim hyun Mi right now. And according to a BBC news report in 2013, hyun Mi's family that was left behind in North Korea were allegedly arrested and sent to work in a labor camp. So I would love to hear your opinion on the former North Korean spy. Do you think her punishment was fair after committing such an atrocious crime? I don't I don't know how I feel about it because it seems like someone should be held responsible for taking 115 people's lives. It seems like that she is somewhat trying to make her actions right by donating money to the victim's families and by sending... A substantial amount of donations to Japan after the tsunami and earthquake, but I just don't feel that it really justifies her actions because money cannot bring your loved ones back. I also read that she is trying to help bring Megumi and Taguchi back for uh, to their families, even going to Japan to cook some of Takuchi's famous dishes that she made for hyun in North Korea. So it is a bit of a conundrum because you feel like she's trying to make some kind of effort, bring some kind of peace to these people, but I I don't know how I feel about it. It seems almost like one of those situations where if you are not a part of it, you won't be able to fully understand, but I still feel it's kind of wrong. Maybe not give her the death penalty, but maybe she should have been put behind bars. I, I don't know. This is just my opinion. Again, I don't know how I feel about it, so... Tell me what your opinions are and how how you feel about it. After learning that their daughter, Megumi, was still alive, the Yokotas wasted no time sharing their story. At first, they did not want to name their daughter in the media in case word got back to North Korea. But eventually, they were persuaded to disclose her name. They needed to spread the news across Japan and beg the country for help. The family appeared on primetime TV and questions began being raised in the Japanese parliament. After two months, the Japanese government acknowledged that Megumi Yokota was not an isolated incident, and that many Japanese citizens had in fact been abducted. Shigeru said that some people believed this to be a right-wing conspiracy along with other theories. However, while they were ignored without much evidence, the families persisted. The Yakotas joined seven other families who formed a support group called The Association of Families of Victims Kidnapped by North Korea Who Demanded Their Loved Ones to be Rescued. The members of this group talked in great detail about their loved one's sudden disappearance. What little each member of the family knew of the crime, each abduction appeared to be opportunistic. Suddenly, they began to see a pattern. Many of the victims were young lovers in their 20s, who happened to be visiting beaches across Japan when they unexpectedly vanished. One such instance was that of 24-year-old Rumiko Mazumoto and her boyfriend, 23-year-old Shuichi Ishikawa. Nine months after Megumi's disappearance on August 12, 1978, Mazumoto went to watch the sunset with her boyfriend at a beach in Kagoshima, prefecture. She just told her family about her relationship with Shuichi during dinner the day before. The car was found at the scene still locked. Rumiko's sunglasses and wallet lay on the passenger seat. A camera filled with pictures the couple took that very day was found in the car too. Investigators also found one of Shuichi's sandals close to the water's edge. Another such instance happened eight months after Megumi was abducted. I know I'm saying this wrong. Kaoru Hazuike was a 20-year-old student at the time who was walking along the shore during the summer one evening with his girlfriend Yukiko Okuto when they were suddenly surrounded by agents, knocked out, and bundled in sacks into a boat. They were both told that the other was left behind. But after a few years in a small room in Pyongyang, they were reintroduced. The couple was allowed to marry in North Korea because married victims were seen as less likely to escape. Hazuike and Okudo had two children together while in North Korea. The association of families of victims kidnapped by North Korea saw a lot of pushback from the media and politicians. The media would refer to the kidnappings as alleged, which I understand that saying this could discredit what someone is claiming, and it is something that I stated quite a few times in this story. However, for legal reasons and, you know, not to unintentionally start a war, it is something that needs to be said until it is known to be a confirmed truth. And it is also something I say because, you know, I don't want to go missing. (laughs) Some of the politicians in Japan thought that the story was South Korean disinformation that was being used to discredit North Korea. Even though the families were receiving these negative views, they continued lobbying the government, drawing up petitions and filling the airwaves with their stories for everyone to help them find their missing loved ones. The group even gathered 10 million signatures in a petition to pressure the government into releasing the full details of what they knew about the abductions and to rescue them. While the group was still making these cases known to the public, the disguised ships kept coming the North Korean ship would be disguised as a fisherman's boat. In December 2001, the Japanese Coast Guard reported seeing a fisherman boat and tried to make contact with the passengers on board. They fled, refusing to obey the Coast Guard's orders to stop. The crew on the unknown boat used automatic rifles to shoot at the Japanese and wound several in the process. After a lengthy conflict, 10 crew members jumped off the rogue boat and drowned. The boat was salvaged by the Japanese and is speculated to have been used as a kind of mothership for spying operations and to distribute illicit drugs. The boat was said to have hidden double doors at the back for underwater scooters and frogmen to easily access the vessel, which was confirmed by the vehicles and suits found in the room. For those of you who don't know what a frogman is, because I had to look it up, I had no idea they went by this term. A person who is trained in scuba diving or swimming underwater in a tactical capacity, which includes military, and in some European countries, it's also something they do for police work. So other terms frogmen go by include combat swimmer, combatant diver, or combat diver. The ship was also equipped with Russian-made weapons, which were mounted on the deck, as well as machine guns and anti-aircraft gun. Its powerful engines propelled it at 37 miles per hour, which I know that doesn't sound like much, but that is fast for a ship, especially when you consider the average speed of a military ship nowadays can be from 28 miles per hour and there's a maximum speed of 40 miles per hour. Uh, Some military ships can go faster than this, but it all depends on what country the ship belongs to and what the vessel is used for. But back to the North Korean ship that was disguised as a fisherman boat, all of the crew wore Kim Il-sung badges and it is suspected that some of them were secret agents. Further investigations found that they had phone numbers containing Yakuza hitmen on their mobile phones. Two years after this, the Su was intercepted by Australian Special Operations Command in NSW waters. NSW stands for New South Wales and is located near the bottom half of the east side of Australia. So it is odd that a random North Korean ship would be found here, right? Australian authorities searched the ship and revealed that not only was the ship modified for long voyages, it was carrying enough fuel and provisions for the occupants to travel around the world without needing to port. So they had enough provisions that they they wouldn't need to stop and replenish. That's just crazy that they had that much provisions on that one ship. So anyway, on September 21st, 2002, the Prime Minister of Japan, Junichiro Koizumi, flew to North Korea to speak with leader Kim Jong-il. The purpose of this meeting was to normalize Japan's relations with North Korea. However, Koizumi was said to have walked into a diplomatic ambush. It was reported that Kim Jong-il had apologized for the early morning meeting in Pyongyang, but the Prime Minister's anger did not stem from the early morning hours. During the meeting, Kim Jong-il requested food aid and investment from Japan after North Korea suffered a horrendous famine in the 1990s, which is speculated to have killed approximately 2 million of its citizens. The North Korean leader also apologized to Japan for its 35-year colonization of Japan. The Prime Minister refused the request unless North Korea provided details on every citizen abducted by Pyongyang's spies. Roughly 30 minutes before the meeting took place, Koizumi was given a list with 13 names of Japanese citizens. Of the 13 written on the list, only five were said to have been alive. The cause of death given for the eight who were said to have died included drowning two car accidents, choking on fumes from a broken coal heater, and a 27-year-old woman dying from a heart attack. Pyongyang also claimed that the eight deceased victims' remains could not be provided to Japan because floods had washed away almost all of their graves. Personally. I have a problem with this because there are many errors in the victim's supposed deaths. Firstly, do you know how hard it is to purchase a car in North Korea? Vehicles are expensive there. Most citizens opt to ride bicycles. And there are checkpoints literally everywhere. North Korean authorities constantly stop you to check your ID and allegedly expect a bribe. It's no easy task to get around in North Korea. So even if the abductees were somehow able to have a vehicle or even to carpool, the roads are practically empty. Sure, you could argue the vehicle could have struck them as they walked across the road, or the vehicle hit some obstacle. But as I said, I personally find it unlikely. Secondly, as I stated previously, it is so ridiculously difficult to travel around in North Korea. So how could these people have drowned? Sure, they could have drowned not long after arriving in North Korea or maybe in a swimming pool. But hardly anyone has the privilege to enjoy a beach vacation. Which I also provided a link to an article about beach life in North Korea which is told by a defector just so you guys can read it and verify how difficult it is to enjoy the simplest things that we take for granted. Third. How does a 27-year-old die from a heart attack? It's not unheard of, but it is extremely rare. And lastly, isn't it just extremely convenient that a flood washed their graves away? Back to the story. So by receiving this news, the Prime Minister of Japan was obviously upset. He would have to tell or have one of his advisors tell these victims' families of their ultimate demise. Reportedly, Koizumi told Kim Jong-il, I was utterly distressed by this information that was provided and as the prime minister, who is ultimately responsible for the interests and security of the Japanese people, I must strongly protest. I cannot bear to imagine how the remaining family members will take the news. Kim took notes on a memo pad before requesting that they take a break. During this break, Shinzo Abe, who is the deputy cabinet spokesman, urged the Prime Minister not to sign the declaration for normalization unless Pyongyang formally apologizes for abducting Japanese citizens. When the meeting resumed, Kim took out his memo pad and began reading, We have thoroughly investigated this matter, including by examining our government's role in it. Decades of adversarial relations between our two countries provided the background for this incident. It was nevertheless an appalling incident. It is my understanding that this incident was initiated by special mission organizations in the 1970s and 1980s, driven by blindly motivated patriotism, and misguided heroism. As soon as their scheme and deeds were brought to my attention, those who were responsible were punished. This kind of thing will never be repeated. Kim further confirmed that these kidnappings were designed to provide their spies with native Japanese teachers and false identities to obtain entry into South Korea for missions. He continued that some of these Japanese victims were taken from beaches, while others were taken while studying or traveling in Europe. Kim even mentioned the youngest abductee, Megumi. He claimed that her abductors had been tried and found guilty in 1998. For their crime, one was executed and the other died while serving a 15-year sentence. He finished with this. I would like to take this opportunity to apologize straightforwardly for the regrettable conduct of those people. I will not allow that to happen again. And with that, the Prime Minister signed the Pyongyang Declaration. So by this point, I think the Prime Minister was in shock and also not wanting to upset anyone. So he just accepted the details that were provided in that meeting. After all, they finally got the North Korean leader to fess up to their abductions. On October 15, 2002, Pyongyang agreed that the five abductees, who were said to still be alive, were allowed to return to Japan for seven to ten days. They never returned to North Korea. Seriously, how are you going to tell Japanese citizens that they can only stay home for a week? They didn't want to go to North Korea in the first place, so... Why would they willingly throw that that freedom and security out the window? That little detail was just insane to me. So, on October 15th, the five abductees landed at Tokyo's Haneda Airport, where they were greeted with handmade welcome home signs, the Japanese flag, and most importantly, their loved ones. They all stood hugging and sobbing on the tarmac. All of these abductees had been gone for approximately twenty-five years. Remember Okuto and Haizuke? The two were abducted while on a date that married in North Korea and had two children. They returned to Japan on this day. However, their son and daughter would not be released until two years later. After returning, the couple had another child and settled back into life successfully. Another abductee who was returned on that day was Hitomi Soga. She was a 19-year-old nurse who was kidnapped with her mother, Miyoshi, who was 46, after going shopping on August 12, 1978. She was separated from her mother and was never heard from again. Soga married a U.S. Army deserter in North Korea, and they had two children. Interpol has issued arrest warrants for three suspected kidnappers, one of whom is speculated to have murdered Soga's mother. Unfortunately, since North Korea is known as the Hermit Kingdom, it is unlikely that any of these people would receive punishment for their crimes. Also, it is unlikely that these three perpetrators are still alive today due to their ages. In 2015, the three people ranged in age from 76 to 86 which would make them 84 to 94 today. But what about the ones who were claimed to have died? How do you get those people back? As I stated in the meeting between Japan and North Korea, Kim Jong-il mentioned Megumi Yokota, North Korea initially claimed that Yokota died on March 13, 1993. However, they stated that this was a mistake and that she hanged herself in a pine forest on the grounds of Pyongyang Mental Hospital, where she was being treated for depression on April 13, 1994. To support this, Pyongyang produced a certificate that was stated to be a hospital death registry. This registry was reportedly a form with the words Registry of Patient Entering and Leaving the Hospital on the back. However, entering and leaving the hospital was suspiciously crossed out several times and the word death was written instead. Japan conveyed its suspicions about the document to North Korea. The Yakota family does not believe that Megumi killed herself. In fact, Saki found the details of Pyongyang unsettling She told the Washington Post in 2002, In Niigata, we had pine forests. I'm sure she missed them. I'm sure she was very lonely. For a minute, I thought maybe she longed so much for us, and she couldn't come back to that. In an instant, she took her own life. I cried, but in the next minute, I said, No, that could not have happened. I do not want it to have happened. I don't want her to have gone through that. Fuki Chimura, an abducted Japanese woman, stated that Magumi had moved next door to her and her husband in North Korea in June 1994. They claimed that Magumi had lived next door to them for months after her supposed death. Two years after providing a questionable death certificate, North Korea sent Magumi's supposed ashes, ashes to her family which arrived on the 27th anniversary of her abduction. The Yakotas had a DNA test performed on the ashes using the umbilical cord of Megumi that they kept when she was born. Keeping the baby's umbilical cord after birth is a Japanese tradition. The DNA test showed that the samples did not match. The scientists later reported that the results were inconclusive because the samples could have been contaminated. However, it is alleged that North Korea had sent bones claiming it was Karu Matsuki, an abductee who supposedly died at 42. The remains included a jawbone fragment that a dental expert stated belonged to a 60-year-old woman. So how do you rescue a person whose captors claim they are dead? The Akotas are not the only family whose loved one was said to have died while in North Korea. The young office worker who shyly doted on her new relationship in 1978, Rumiko Mazumoto, was on the list of deceased. She is the 27-year-old woman who was claimed to have died of a heart attack. Because there is no family history of heart failure, her family refuses to accept their explanation of her death. Her younger brother, Toruaki Mazumoto, was 22, studying fishery in Hokkaido at the time of his sister's abduction. Rumiko and Teruaki's father, Shoichi, died of lung cancer in 2002, and their mother, Nabuko, made it to 90 before passing away in 2017. The parents lost their chance of ever meeting their daughter again, but Teruaki still fights for the chance of seeing his long-lost sister. However, he never felt that he was obligated to fight for his sister because of his parents. They never made him feel that now that they were older, it was his turn to fight. He wanted to fight for his sister's return. Many of the abductees, family members, feel this way. It is an issue that needs to be addressed and resolved. Takuya Yukata, Megumi's younger brother, was only 30 years old when he felt the need to step in place of his parents. The parents of these victims are aging and cannot travel to faraway places anymore. It takes a toll on their bodies. In 2021, only two parents of the acknowledged 17 victims remain alive. Saki Yokota is the youngest mother at 87 years old. In my research, I could not find if the other parent is still alive today. But considering Saki's age, I presume it is unlikely. Megumi's father passed away in 2020, another parent who lost his chance to see his daughter one last time. He went to the hospital in April 2018, fighting every day to hang on just a little longer. A picture of Megumi stayed by his bedside. He even carried that comb he received as a gift the day before her disappearance in his pocket. It stayed in his pocket every day. Koichiro Izuka has fought for the return of his mother. She was abducted when he was only 16 months old. He is now 45. His mother, Yeiko Taguchi, was a 22-year-old nightclub hostess working to provide for her 16-month-old baby son and 3-year-old daughter after going through a divorce when she was abducted in June 1978. Just like the others, she disappeared under mysterious circumstances, and the authorities were alerted when she failed to pick up her children from daycare. Kobichiro was adopted by Yeko's brother, Shigeo Izuka, and raised as his fourth child. Her daughter was adopted by Yeiko's older sister. Understandably, he knows nothing of his mother and calls her Yeiko's son, or Miss Yeiko. She is an abductee that is claimed to have died in a car accident. Until he was 22 years old, Koichiro only knew of his dad and mom as Shigeo, his uncle, and Aiko, which was his aunt. He had no idea just how complex his life truly was. When he was 22, he had a job that required training abroad. To obtain a passport, he needed to get the family registration papers. This is how he found out about his biological mother. His adoptive dad brought him to lunch and explained that his younger sister was his mother then proceeded to tell him about the North Korean spy who claimed she was taught Japanese by Yeko Taguchi, a claim that was later confirmed by Fuki Chimura, a returned Japanese abductee, who stated that Yeko shared accommodation with her. In 2004, Koichiro made it publicly known that he was the son of Yeko Taguchi. Koichiro and Shigeo traveled to Busan in 2009 to meet the former Korean spy Kim hyun hui to learn about Yeko after her abduction. Shigeo passed away on December 18, 2021. The life of Megumi Yokota after abduction remains a mystery, with little leaks slowly dripping from the hermit kingdom. It is said that in 1986, at 22 years old, Megumi married Kim Young-nam, a South Korean who was speculated to have been abducted. Megumi and Young-nam had a daughter the following year named Kim Eun-kyung. Young-nam has since remarried. In June 2006, he was allowed to have his family from South Korea visit him. During this visit, he confirmed that Megumi had committed suicide after suffering from depression. He also claimed that there were multiple attempts before she succeeded in 1994. Yong-nam also claimed that the remains that were returned in 2004 were genuinely yokotas. His statements were widely dismissed with people claiming that Yong-nam repeated the official Pyongyang line. Megumi's father claimed that it appeared Yong-nam was not allowed to speak freely during his interview in Pyongyang. He stated that it seemed as though Young Nam was restricted in terms of what he could say. It appeared as though he was reading from a script. Many believe Megumi is alive today. In November 2011, it was reported by a South Korean magazine that a 2005 directory of Pyongyang residents listed a woman named Kim Un gong whose birthday is the same as Megumi's. The directory also showed that Eun-gong's spouse was Kim Yong-nam. On November 18, 2011, Japanese Government sources reviewed this information but have not concluded the identity of the woman listed. Sources later suggested that Kim Ungong was Megumi's 24-year-old daughter. In March 2014, Megumi's parents finally met with their granddaughter Kim Ungyong. Fearing that Japan wouldn't return Ungyong, they met in Mongolia. During this visit, they were also allowed to meet 24-year-old Ungyong's own daughter. The Yokotas did not ask if Megumi was alive because they knew she wouldn't speak freely, nor did they feel that she would tell them anything but what she was only allowed to say. It is also speculated that Kim un jung Megumi's daughter, works with Kim Jong-un's younger sister, Kim Yo-jung. It is reported that she is protected by the ruling dynasty and is a member of the elite in North Korea working with Kim Yo-jong in the same department. This furthers the speculation that Megumi was introduced to the Kim family. If you remember, 13-year-old Megumi was promised that she could return home if she became fluent in Korean. It is also speculated that she taught Japanese to Kim Jong-un, which would ultimately reinforce their refusal to let her leave. If true, Megumi would be known as one of the rare privileged elite known as the admitted. This would also mean that she knows too much. So, Megumi is only one of the 17 people who the Japanese government recognizes as having been abducted. While North Korea only admitted to stealing 13 citizens, claiming they had no involvement with the remaining 4. However, on the national police list, there may be 861 cases, which I think this list may be, may just be a missing persons list, or maybe these 861 cases have similar circumstances. Because five of the 13 abductees have been returned, Pyongyang feels the issue is resolved. However, Japan and many others feel the opposite. Unfortunately, the families of the abductees are aging fast and will likely never see their loved ones again. However, they keep this human rights issue ever present in Japan. Naoki Shida is the director of Nikata's prefecture abduction office and organizes films, animes, and 40 exhibitions a year on the issue. He stated that we strongly believe the voice of every Japanese person is a big Force to move the Japanese government and the international community and eventually lead to their return. Shida also visits high schools and is often asked if these abductions are still occurring today. He responds, It shouldn't, but. So again, it is an issue that is being addressed, but you can never be certain that abductions from other countries are not happening right now. And I'm not saying. You know, North Korea is is abducting everyone still. I'm just saying, from any country, you don't know. You just you don't know. Taesuki Mi Bay is the director of the Abductions Office, which was set up by Prime Minister Abe and has been on the case for a dozen years. He even accompanied Koizumi to Pyongyang and inf- and interviewed some of the abductees that were detained there. He stated. I was taken to the top floor of a building in Pyongyang, and each Japanese couple was in a different room. I saw the daughter of Megumi, then aged about 13, the same age as her mother when she was abducted. I told her that her mother is Japanese. She must have been taught to stay calm. She just repeated that she loved her mother, and her mother loved her a lot. But her mother was dead, she said, although she didn't know how she died. There have been documentaries made about Megumi and other kidnapping cases such as 2005's Kidnapped the Japan-North Korea abduction cases, 2006's Abduction the Megumi Yokota Story, and 2007 and 2008's Megumi, a special aired in Japan in October 2006 called Reunion Megumi Yokota's Wish. Yokota's parents even supervised the creation of two mangas titled Megumi and Dakan. The Japanese government also produced an anime adaptation of the Dakan manga, which is about the returned victim, Karu Hazuike. Also in 2010, the Shinjuku Theater performed a stage adaptation of Megumi's life. The Pledge to Megumi centers on Yakota before and during her abduction by North Korea, with a fictional ending where she was reunited with her parents. That has, that would be such a sweet ending. (laughs) And that is it for today's case. While everyone that was taken is important, I think Megumi Yokota is probably the most famous because she was so young. On top of that, the speculations on how well she performed her tasks and became one of the admitted has many talking about her. I just want to say I hope all the families keep fighting for their loved ones and eventually receive the answers they deserve. This case was very complex with so many details and I'm kind of saddened that It didn't really have, it didn't really have a positive ending. It's kind of like, it's not a, it's not a bad ending. It's just kind of more unresolved. It's more unresolved than anything. And I I really hope that the Yakutas and all the other families do have their loved ones returned. So what are your thoughts about this case? Do you think these families will ever receive the answers they deserve or any justice? Do you think Kim Hyun-wee? was given enough punishment or what do you think what are your thoughts about all of that thank you for listening to today's case about megumi yokota and the other 17 missing japanese citizens which i'm guessing it it would actually be 12 because five of them five of them were returned so again thank you for listening. Please leave any comments or reviews. And also, if you have a case that you would like me to look into and talk about on here, please leave that in the comments. In the show notes, I have a way for you to send me an email with the cases you may want me to cover. So anyway, thank you for listening. Stay safe and I will see you again for the next episode. Bye!